Dear Heavenly Father, it is a joy to be gathered among others who share in a heart's desire to be in Your Word. Father, we find ourselves in a world that for so many do not know You and even deny You. And certainly, Father, they do not elevate Your Word to its proper place in their respect for it and in their commitment to it and their belief of it. And we, we thank You, Father, that by Your grace, so many in this room now have come to such an awareness and are so committed that they would take time on this evening to come and be in Your Word. And for the Holy Spirit in each of us who did the work to change our hearts and to bring us here and to open our minds to the truth on these pages. Father, we, we owe You so much for that. We owe You an uncountable cost. We are, uh, we are amazed, Father, that the Lord and Creator of the universe would bring Himself low to those in His creation who have spurned Him but in reaching out would offer us the opportunity to know You in this way. Let us not take this opportunity lightly, Father. Let us not take it as simply a way to pass an hour. And uh, far be it for us, Father, to take it as an opportunity to, to bring our own intellect to bear in such a way that we would uh, try to second-guess Your great plan and Your great Word. But rather, Father, make us as children in our hearts so that we are open to whatever it is You have brought us here to learn. Not by my power, Father, not by my thought or words, or even by what I have planned to speak on the pages before me, Father, but rather by your Holy Spirit and by his power to teach all of us. And let it be to your glory as we devote ourselves now to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I'm encouraged just by the number of people who do want to be here on a Wednesday in July. So uh, let's open the word together and let's go into where we left off in chapter 21 of Luke. We ended last week, at the, or two weeks ago, chapter 20. Jesus is in the temple. He's in the temple mount and more specifically in the courtyard of the Gentiles. He's been teaching there for the better part of a day or two now. He's been in the city for approximately four days since he walked in in the triumphal entry that we studied. And he's been tested. If you remember the scene out of chapter 20, he had been subjected to the tests of the men, the leadership of the nation of Israel constituted in the Sanhedrin. Four principal groups, each representing a different political party within the nation of Israel. We went through all of that. And in the course of that testing, he was fulfilling the scriptural requirement of the Passover lamb being inspected prior to its sacrifice. If you remember, under the law, a family brought a lamb into their home and they kept it for four days prior to the Passover. And the purpose of them having it in that way was so that they could inspect it to ensure it was, in fact, spotless. Jesus, as our Passover lamb, walked into the city and underwent a similar scrutiny at the hands of the religious leadership, only to be found without sin and therefore spotless and an appropriate sacrifice. So here we stand now on the Wednesday of the, day, of the week that we know as Passover week, Wednesday night, we will see here in another chapter the um, event that we call the Last Supper, which is actually his Passover meal. Thursday morning will be the day in which he will be sacrificed on the cross to die. Three days later, he rises. We'll go through all of that. We'll reiterate the timeline and how, that came, how it comes to be that he died on those days of the week and how it is that some have you know, misconstrued the timing to be a Friday death and so on. We will go through all of that as we get into chapter 22. But tonight, we begin chapter 21 with a, an important segue, one of the most important discourses of the Bible, certainly of, of the time Jesus spent in Jerusalem that week. And it includes probably the most famous of his discourses, the Olivet, maybe along with the Beatitudes, the, the Olivet Discourse. The discourse he gives privately to his disciples while on the Mount of Olives. He reaches that point after he leaves the temple. So in the scene we've been involved in where he's been in the temple teaching, 
He's finished that day of teaching, and he's going to walk out of the temple to the Temple Mount. And in that process of moving out of the city and into the Temple Mount, he's going to bring up the issue of the temple. He's going to make some provocative statements, and the disciples are going to respond with the obvious questions you and I would have had as well. Uh, what is it you're talking about? And he goes into this all that discourse. So that's where we're going today. In Luke's Gospel, this discourse is actually part two of Jesus' teaching on end-time events, on something we call eschatology, or the doctrine of end times. This is part two. We studied part one, if you remember, back in chapter 17. It was uh, where he talked there about the nature of his second coming. And in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, which we're going to cover at times a little bit while we, in reference as we study chapter 21 of Luke, in Matthew's account in chapter 24 of his Gospel, he actually takes both part one and part two and tells it as a single discourse. While in Luke's Gospel, we see the discourse separated into two different moments, one in chapter 17 and one here. Now, whether Jesus presented the material originally in one sitting, as Matthew records it, or whether he separated it into two different discussions, as Luke records it, or a third option is that he actually repeated parts of it, telling it once earlier and then again in the discourse on Olivet, on the Olivet Mountain. Regardless of which one of those is true, and it is a matter of some debate, the more important issue for our study tonight is to properly understand what he was talking about in the discourse. The contents of it, in other words, are going to form the basis of our discussion tonight. Um, I personally hold to the view that what Jesus did was what he often did in his ministry, which is to tell something more than once. And in many cases, he would repeat things not just because the disciples couldn't get it the first time, but because the crowd itself was changing from moment to moment. But in the way they're recorded in Scripture today, we find God giving us the full story through the various authors' perspective. So before we get into that discourse, though, we have to attend to a few opening verses in chapter 21. Because Luke himself, in his narrative, includes a little vignette, this little moment in the temple right before Jesus exits, that itself is not part of the discourse, it's not part of the eschatology of chapter 21, but it does help us transition nicely between what he has been doing in the temple into the discourse. But at first glance, the transition probably isn't obvious to everyone. Um, and in fact, some might even argue that it's just been placed there by Luke for con a contrived reason. But in fact, I don't believe that. I think it was exactly as it took place. And it has a direct relevance to what happens next. So let's look at the first four verses of chapter 21 to begin tonight. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they, out of their surplus, put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And we'll pause there because obviously the text goes into a new direction after that. Remember what I just said. At the end of chapter 20, he's in the temple grounds. He's enduring these tests that we mentioned earlier. He then moves to this moment of observation. It's obvious, by the way... Uh, or it's less obvious by the way Luke records this, more obvious by the way the other Gospel writers record this, particularly Mark, that Jesus actually moves to this moment. He actually has to physically move from where he had been teaching to get closer to the treasury within the temple grounds. And he sat down and began to observe what people were putting into the treasury. So this is not a casual observation. I don't want you to get the impression he's teaching, he's teaching, and then out of the corner of the eye he notices this thing going on with the widow, and he kind of glances at it and talks about it. No, he purposefully moved so that he could watch the giving going on, sat there for a while, observed person after person going by, the rich depositing their giving, and then ultimately this widow doing what she did. 
and then he teaches from that experience. So that adds a little more emphasis to the fact that this is not some casual moment. In effect, Jesus has set himself up so that he could make this observation, so that this moment would occur. Let's talk a little bit about what was going on. Within the temple itself, within the temple grounds, there were obviously people arriving with their sacrifices and their offerings and making those sacrifices and offerings at the altar or through the priesthood at the altar, of course. And, and that was a normal process, a normal activity of the temple. That is not this. This is not an offering. This is not the idea of someone taking uh, some amount of, of wheat or grain or oil or flour or an animal, certainly, and going before the temple as required under the law and giving some sacrifice, either in atonement for sin or as an offering to God in thanks. That is not this giving. This is an alms, as is often called in the Scripture. This is a voluntary, self-sacrificial giving to a treasury fund that was maintained by the priests for the purpose of charity. For the purpose of the priests then having a fund from which they could draw to assist the needy within the nation of Israel. So those who had needs of one kind or another and would come to the priests looking for some kind of financial outlay, some kind of support, this would be the fund from which those men could draw that support. But it was a purely, fine, a purely voluntary giving. There was no requirement under the law that a Jew would, would necessarily have to go to this place, this, this treasury, and deposit any of the money that you see being deposited here. This is different than a sacrifice at the altar. Now, the rabbis of their day, of the day Christ uh, walked the earth, the day of this story, they had a principle, they had a rabbinical rule, or a, canon, a rule of canon, that applied to giving alms that said that the least value anyone could give to the treasury was two prutah in the, in, the, in the Hebrew. The word for the coin that she's using here is a prutah. Uh, it's, as they said, a brass or a copper coin. It represents the smallest denomination of Jewish money. And we're talking Jewish money here. Remember, we've talked before about the coin changers. They weren't going to accept Greek money. So this is a Jewish coin. And it's the smallest. You could say it's equivalent to a penny in the sense of it being equivalent by virtue of it being the smallest denomination, although its value is greater than a penny of today. And their canon, their rule, said you can't give less than two of them. So if you're going to give an alm, you've got to give at least two of these small, small coins of minimum worth. This coin value, let me give you an idea of what its real value would be for you and I today. It, was rep it represented one sixty-fourth of a denarius. And we've said here before, a denarius was equivalent to a, a, a blue-collar wage. A, a day's wage to a blue-collar worker, a, a laborer in the field, let's say, would roughly receive a denarius for a day of work. This was worth about one sixty-fourth of that. So if you want to do some quick math, that meant it's worth about nine minutes of work in an eight-hour day. So nine minutes of work, and at minimum wage, if we're talking today's currency, if you assume uh, a laborer going out to work in your yard might get paid minimum wage, let's say, and you wanted to break minimum wage down to what is nine minutes of work at minimum wage, you're talking about 75 cents. So if you want to try to equate the value of their money in their day to what we would consider money to be worth today, you're talking about somebody giving roughly 75 cents worth of money. So, and I don't just mean 75 cents inflated. I mean, whatever you can buy today with 75 cents is about what they could buy with, 75, with, with two prata in their day. So that's, what I'm, that's the comparison I'm trying to make. So it is a very small amount of money. You know, like they say, 75 cents and get you a Coke. You know, she could have bought something very minimal with that amount of money. Some refer to this story as the story of the widow and the mite. That word comes from a French word, uh, mite, which simply means a small crumb. The point here is obvious. The woman gave a very small amount of money. But because of that rabbinical rule, 
we know a little bit more than just the fact she gave two. She gave the minimum that she could, but then again, she gave all she had. And she gave voluntarily. So that is to say that if it had not been for the rabbinical rule, perhaps she would have given one of the two coins she had and kept one for herself. But knowing that she had to give at least two if she gave anything, the next best choice to you and I might have been to do what? Give nothing. What she chose to do, on the other hand, was give it all. On the basis that she wanted to give, and she was willing to adopt and follow the rules of the day, and so she did the only thing she could do. She gave everything she had, according to what Jesus says. She gave all that she had voluntarily. She gave all the money that she had, and by that I think the logical interpretation would be all that she had in that for living on that day, because most people didn't have money for tomorrow until tomorrow came. So it's likely the case that she led, lived day to day on whatever she could get from the temple or from passers-by or from some other means, and she had managed to amass this amount of money for that day, and she gave it away, which also means that she gave it away with no expectation of replacement and yet with full trust that God would provide. She was the kind of person that that fund was established to support. And yet she chose to be the one who gave to the very fund that she legitimately should have withdrawn funds from as a person in need. In contrast to her, the rich were told her giving large sums of money. And Jesus makes it very specific as well. So they're not just giving large sums of money in the sense that they're giving sacrificially at a greater level. The point is they're not giving sacrificially. They're giving out of their surplus. What do we define the difference to be? Well, in the case, you know, there's the old joke about the difference between someone who's involved and someone who's committed. You know, when it came to breakfast, the, the pig and the chicken argue about who gives more to the meal, right? The pig... The, the chicken's involved, gives the egg, but the pig is committed, gives his life, right? It's that old joke maybe you've heard. And that's the essential difference here. The woman had no surplus. I mean, if truth be told, there was no access to her budget. She had no easy way to give anything. So if she is to be of giving kind sort, she had to give everything under the rules she was faced with. The rich, on the other hand, likewise didn't have to give anything. And you should know Jesus does not condemn them. There's no condemnation in the way he approaches their giving. He's not making a statement about the fact that they didn't give enough necessarily. What he's stating, though, is their gift doesn't represent any kind of sacrifice on their part. They were giving of a surplus, of money that really wasn't essential to their needs or to their plans. It was money kind of sitting around, pocket change, we would call it. But for them, it was still a large amount of money. It's interesting that we know what they gave. And there's another dimension of this story that comes from that fact. Now, it could be debated as to whether this practice was actually done in the day of the temple, but there are historians that say it was a common practice from time to time. And that practice was that the priests would stand next to the treasury as the money was being donated by one individual after another and would announce publicly what each person had donated as they made their donation. Now, imagine that for a moment. What if, put yourself in Sunday morning sermon time, and the little plate passes by, and the usher looks at it and says, Steve gave 12 cents. <laughs> and then it moved to the next person. How often do you think a poor person would make a trip to the treasury in Jesus' day under those circumstances? And on the other hand, how many, how many of those rich people were doing it for obvious effect? Now, if this effect, if this practice was in fact, going on in Jesus' day in the moment this story is written, and there's a good chance it was, 
it would seem to explain to some degree why Jesus would have taken note of the woman's giving, why he would have sat and done what he did, what he did in the first place, why it would be possible that we would now know how much was being given by each of these individuals. Because as this whole parade of rich person after rich person after rich person goes by and has their giving announced, it's almost as if there's probably an air of one-upsmanship. There's almost an air of, of this congratulatory kind of atmosphere going on of, ooh, he gave that much. Oh, I wonder if the next person will beat it. Oh, he gave that much, right? And of course, if that was the practice in the day, you would hardly, if ever, expect to see anybody going get into line. Remember, this is voluntary. So you wouldn't expect to see anybody get into line who wasn't capable of sort of holding their own with whoever had gone before them. Because to do otherwise would have been to just open yourself up to scorn unnecessarily. You'd have been better off doing nothing. And what this woman did was go in the face of that, potentially, step into line, and have the announcement made that she gave these two coins, the bare minimum, the very minimum you could give. And she was content to do it. And yet Jesus commends her. And perhaps he did so to teach the lesson in the moment to the disciples to view her circumstances differently than was perhaps the case for others who watched in the same moment. And this is the comparison he makes. And I want you to be careful with this because it would be very easy to draw a conclusion that's a bit too simplistic given what we're told in the chapter. More giving to the degree you can is better. In other words, in relative terms, give as much as you can. Something simplistic like that. You got $100 in the bank account, give as much of that as you can. You got a million dollars in the bank account, give as much of that as you can. Now, that's, that's a bit too simplistic for what's being uh, mentioned here. The, the lesson that's being taught is this. If you look at the words from the chapter, from the verses we've already read, he says, The woman's generosity was to be measured not by the amount of her giving, and therefore, in similar terms, neither should the rich's generosity be measured by the amount of their giving, in absolute terms but rather by the degree of sacrifice involved. While those who gave much more money are not being condemned for their giving, neither should the woman. And in fact, her gift should be seen as an even greater gift because of the sacrifice it represented. And the lesson for all of us, of course, is just as obvious, I would hope. The Lord, first and foremost, takes note of our giving. You know, more than a few commentators have looked at this scene and said it's fascinating that Christ spent so much time watching the given, giving. You know, don't miss the fact that what we do in all aspects of our life, certainly, but in, including this one, is known to the Lord. He knows our giving. He knows our generosity. But not by the ultimate impact of the giving. Not by the ultimate impact of the giving. He measures our generosity by what we sacrifice in our willingness to serve the needs of others through our giving. So there are many who would congratulate themselves because they know personally they've given thousands, if not tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to charity. The lesson of the chapter is that in and of itself is a meaningless statistic. The only statistic that would matter to God is without respect to the sum of money you've given, to what degree did it bring sacrifice as a byproduct of the giving? Did you give from your surplus or was there a sense of sacrificial giving, of denying of self? for the needs of others, of putting others' needs before your own. And that sense of sacrifice, was that implicit in the giving or not? Not to say that giving is bad if it doesn't carry with it sacrifice. He doesn't condemn. But just to make the point that we shouldn't think too highly of our giving were it not to include some sense of sacrifice. Remember, God doesn't need our money. That's a message that's not popular in pulpits in many places these days, but the facts are God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Whatever you have, he gave to you in the first place. He hardly waits for you to give it back so that he'll have the money to do what he needs to do. 
His ability to fund the needs of the church and of ministry generally and of a plan of His kingdom is completely without dependence on whether or not you give a dime. It doesn't change the need to give. It doesn't change the mandate. It just simply says that we don't get credit for enabling God to do anything. Our giving is not done for the sake of enabling God to achieve what He wants to achieve. Fundamentally, it's about us. It's about a spiritual growth opportunity in our lives and then as a result of our giving the opportunity for God to bless others, yes, but His opportunity to bless isn't dependent on our giving. He is never limited by our stinginess and He is not enabled by our generosity. We are commanded to give, we are commanded to be charitable, and we are commanded to give, not because God needs our money, we're commanded to do so because of the spiritual benefit, because of the developing of a growing trust and dependence on God. Remember, the ultimate effect of this woman's giving was a dependence made evident in her life upon God. Because it was then self-evident to any who knew her that the only way this woman was going to eat is if God came to her rescue. But by the same token, it was equally obvious she expected him to do so. That's the testimony. I'll end with, on this point just by making note of what a couple of much better, smarter, uh, more knowledgeable men have said on this point. Matthew Henry said this. He said, Though we can give but a little in charity, yet if it be according to our ability and be given with an upright heart, it shall be accepted of Christ who requires according to what a man has and not according to what he has not. Two mites shall be put upon the treasury and credited to our account before God if given in a right manner as if they had been a fortune. It is much to the praise of charity when we give not only to our power, but beyond our power, as the Macedonian churches did when Paul said, whose deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. When we can cheerfully provide for others out of our own necessary provision, as the widow did for Elijah and as Christ did for the 5,000 guests, and trust God to provide us in some other way, that is thankworthy. I like the way he says that. One last comment. Christ shows in this story that the works of charity should be estimated not by their appearance, but by the Spirit which produces them. That all men are properly in a state of equality. For though there is and ought to be differences in outward things, God looks upon the heart. And the poorest person, I love this statement, the poorest person has in their power the ability to make his might as acceptable to the Lord by simplicity of intention and purity of affection as the millions given by the affluent. You can have as much impact in terms of what God views in your heart by giving a mite if it's done with the spirit of sacrifice as a rich person has the capability to do through a giving of millions. It's a very interesting thing to think about. I want to draw a comparison here from what this woman is doing to why Christ would tell the story and then we'll go into Luke 21.5. But Think about this. This man has just left the temple and he's been telling the disciples and to the crowd in general about who he was and what he would do and why he was there. He's been defending himself to those who would come and accuse him. He's about to turn over the church to the, to the apostles in the, in the hours after his death, of course. And in that role, he's about to sacrifice himself. He's about to stand up on a cross and sacrifice. Now make the comparison for yourself to this woman. The woman didn't have to do what she did. In fact, if it were her own interests that ruled her decision-making, the best thing she could have done was walk out of there giving nothing. She couldn't just give part of what she had because the rules didn't allow a partial giving. She either gave nothing or she gave her all. And out of a love for the Lord, out of a love for, her, for God and for God's people, she made the decision voluntarily to walk into the temple and give everything she had and risk scorn 
over having done so publicly and in doing so gave a lesson on what it meant to give sacrificially. And in like manner now, draw the comparison as Christ went to the cross in scorn, voluntarily giving all for those who deserve nothing. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're carrying the idea forward out of the story of the widow and the mite of the need to be sacrificial in giving, not just in the simplistic sense of money, but in a general sense, even to the point of giving one's life. That's, I think, the ultimate application that if it didn't come in the moment, it eventually would have come for the minds of the disciples who heard it on that day and for you and I perhaps today. Let's go now back into 21. And today, as I said, we're going to take a turn now into eschatology. Um, One of my favorite topics, perhaps yours as well. We're going to take this discourse as it comes, which is to say it's in sections. And in the first few verses, we need to take a few moments to understand how it's set up, why it is it takes place, why it's structured the way it is. The answers to those questions come in the first three verses. Begin in chapter 21, verse 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the day will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Well, we're stopping there because this sets up a very important, very necessary introductory uh, section to the discourse that if you don't get this right, I'm convinced of this in my own study and others have come to the same conclusion. If you don't get this part right, you're, you're, you're without a hope of understanding what comes after it properly. I mean, you get some parts right because they're obvious, but you'll mix up some things because it's very important to understand how Christ responds to the questions he's just been asked. That's a central way you understand what he's saying. And to really understand... What's being done here? You have to do some cross-comparisons to the other Gospels. The disciples and Jesus, as I said, are leaving the temple. And what happens as they leave is the disciples begin to do a little sightseeing on the way out. It's not hard to understand why. We don't know the temples. uh, We haven't seen it ourselves. We have pictures of what people believe it looked like. But I think if you had been able to see it in its day, it would uh, would rival anything you've seen since. It it, It wasn't just majestic. It was massive. It wasn't just massive, it was an architectural wonder. Some of the stones that made up the base of the structure were 20 or 30 tons apiece in weight, and they fitted together as closely as any two masonry stones have ever been fitted together in history. There are things we still don't know how they did, you know, kind of like the Egyptian pyramids uh, of, of centuries earlier. We still don't understand with the technology they had at their disposal how they were able to fashion and move such huge weighted stones and put them into place so per- perfectly. And, and, and the rest of the structure was similarly magnificent. It would have awed anybody who walked through it. And that was the effect it had on the disciples as they leave. They're talking to themselves about how cool this building is. And they're remarking on it. In in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 13, verse 1, you hear him saying this, the same moment, but they say it this way. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what beautiful stones and what wonderful buildings. I don't know who this guy was, but he was acting as a tourist guide for Jesus as he's walking out of his own temple, right? But it's natural. I mean, humanly humanly speaking, this is what maybe you and I would have done. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, uh, doesn't seem to have a lot of patience for this. And you have to give that some understanding as well. He's hours from his passion. He uh, has just had some, you know, a tough day in the temple. 
And he's sure that, you know, as he wants to leave the earth, he wants these disciples to come away with some understanding, not just of what he's taught them up till now, but, but also of the future, of, of God's plan. Some understanding of what God had in store for them and for the church. And that's still on his mind. He knows time is fleeting. He knows he has to get to that point. So in response to their little casual observation, offhanded comment about the temple's beauty, he gives this provocative response. He basically says something in my vernacular. It goes like this. He says, you see that temple? He says, well, there's going to come a day when you're not going to see one stone in this temple left unturned. The whole thing's going to come down in rubble. And he said that knowing it would shock them. I mean, it's a provocative statement. In fact, if you want something similar to, to try to get a sense in your own mind of just how provocative this statement would have been, it would be something like if I were to take you from here to, let's say, New York City and walk down one of the streets in New York City and, you know, the tall buildings of downtown New York City, and I were to point you up and say, look, you see the World Trade Center? What if I told you in one hour both of those buildings would come down, not a stone would be left unturned in either of those two buildings? One hour. you go, you're crazy. You know, you're nuts. There's no way that could happen. Not in one hour. It's that kind of a statement that, on its face, at first glance, it leaves you with no chance to say anything but, uh, that's ridiculous. But then in consideration of its source, the speaker, and knowing what they knew about Christ and his authority at that point, they can't dismiss it out of hand. You could if it were me saying it, but you can't if it's Jesus. And so that brings them to the point on the Olivet Mount, to say, the Mount of Olives, to say, okay, how is this going to happen? And when is this going to happen? And what are the signs that this is going to happen? And so on. It's the natural conversation you would have if you had been there and heard him say that about a building that, from what you see, it's never going to fall. It could never fall. That would have been your response. Matthew, if you have your finger in your Bible, this is actually a moment where you're going to flip back and forth, maybe on a couple of occasions, so it's probably worth marking Matthew 24 so that you're not, you, know, you can move back and forth with me as we do this. Matthew 24, verse 1. This is how Matthew starts the same moment. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away with his disciples and came up to the point out of the temple and they came up to him to point out the temple buildings to him and he said to them do you not see all these things truly I say to you not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down and he was sitting on the mount of olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us when will these things happen and what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age Matthew's account contains an even longer version of this discourse for reasons I've already mentioned. But we aren't going to spend much time on Matthew's discourse. I mean, we're fundamentally studying Luke, and I intend to stay in Luke as, you know, as a principle, if nothing else. But we do need to take note of his opening verses here, because as I said, Matthew mentions a couple of additional questions that Luke doesn't record. And yet, Luke does record the answers to those questions. So we need to know what the questions were so that when we study Luke, we'll be able to match answer to question. Here's where I think the handout comes into play. This is, this is my best effort to piece out the discourse and at the same time making reference to both Matthew and Luke. So what we're going to do, I'm going to walk you through this a little bit, obviously, and I'm going to refer to the, to the chart off and on. Just keep it in front of you. But let's make a couple of real easy observations out of Matthew's account before I go back to Luke. The, the first observation to make out of Matthew is Matthew tells us something important with respect to the environment, to the moment, to the, to the context, to the, the uh, uh, venue, if you will, I guess is the right word. We're on the Mount of Olives, we knew that already, but we're in a private moment. So really what happened was Jesus sees their commentary as they walk out of the temple. He makes the provocative statement, that put a hush to the moment, I'm sure. 
And the disciples were either too stunned to ask in the moment, or maybe they just knew better than to ask in a public setting. But when they finally got him in a private moment, up on the Mount of Olives, then we know from Mark's uh, gospel, actually, that four men, four of the disciples, came to talk to him privately about what he had just said. In Luke, the questions that were asked were summarized as, when will these things take place, and what will be the signs of these things? Two basic questions. I have them noted, as you see on your chart, under the number one. When will these things take place? What will be the signs when these things will take place? Luke alone records that second half. So, the part where it says, what will be the signs when these things take place? That particular part of the question is unique to Luke. So, only Luke records an answer to that question. In truth of fact, I believe Jesus was asked that question. I believe he did answer it. But because Matthew doesn't record the question... He naturally doesn't record the answer either. He just leaves that whole piece out. Luke includes both, so we're going to study both. The other three questions are common to both Matthew and to Luke. In the case of questions number two and three, what are the signs of your coming and what are the signs of the end of the age? Those two come out of what we just read in Matthew. As I said, Luke doesn't mention them, although Luke does include the answers to them. We're going to see the answers in Luke's discourse. The final question is one that the disciples do not ask, but Jesus chooses to answer nonetheless. And we're going to look at why he chose to bring up the question number four, which is, what are not the signs of the end? It's relatively easy to to explain, by the way, why there's a difference in emphasis between the two writers. If you're wondering why why did one writer choose to look at it one way, the other writer slightly differently, just think of their audiences for a moment. Matthew, as we know, wrote to primarily a Jewish audience. And the Jewish audience would have taken a particular interest in any discussion of ages, ages of time. The Jewish tradition had always been to speak of time in terms of an age now and an age to come. That was how their literature talked about it. That's how, the, that's how their Talmud talked about it. That's often how they interpreted messianic or prophecy statements in their Old, Old Testament prophet writing, to talk about it whether it was in reference to this age or to the next age. So when Jesus starts talking about ages to come, it would have been a natural thing for the Jew to latch onto that and be interested in it and hear it carefully. So Matthew made a particular note of the parts of the discourse that dealt with the age now and its ending and the age to come. And that's how he emphasized his discourse. Luke, on the other hand, wrote to a Gentile audience to whom this concept of ages now and ages to come was a totally foreign concept and wouldn't have made much of an impression on them. So the way he framed his questions was more of an emphasis on the issue of the moment, on the temple falling and on the circumstances around it. But as I said, he still includes all the answers to those questions about ages. All right, so if you turn to the handout, looking at those four, you notice, perhaps before anything else, the answer to the questions comes in a different order than the questions themselves. Though they were asked in the the order that I've recorded at the top of the page, and of course, number four not being asked at all, They were answered in the order that you see at the lower part of the chart. Jesus answers question number four first. In other words, before he even gets into their questions, he launches into a discussion of his own making about what will not be signs. What things do you not look at as signs for these events? Then he begins by answering first number three, then number one, and then number two. Now, does that seem odd? It shouldn't. I mean, if you were to ask me rapid-fire three or four questions in a row, 
Isn't it common, in fact, for speakers to typically reorder those a little to suit their own, their own desire, to suit their own purpose, to say, well, let me answer the second one first. Let me, let me start with that last question first. You know, you, that's very common. And that's basically what he did. The only thing Jesus didn't do is say it that way. He didn't stop and say, I'm going to answer question number three first. You know? Because he probably wasn't standing behind a podium and he probably couldn't care less whether or not it came across that clearly. He knew the Holy Spirit would clean it up later. Right? So, you know, we, we can understand that without making a big issue over that, without being too concerned about that. How do we know that they're answered in the order that I've presented here? Well, of course, by the context, by the answers themselves and by what they tell us. So, we're going to go through these questions in the order they're presented in the Scripture, of course, and we're going to look at each of the things he answers. Beginning with the question that wasn't asked. In verse 21 of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8 of chapter 21 of Luke, he says, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. He starts with this comment about what are not the signs of the end. Now, why does he do this? Well, first and foremost, he does this because the signs in and of themselves are not so unique that they can't be misunderstood for something else. They, they, it is possible to misunderstand some of the signs that are consistent with the end because they're not unique to the end. You'll see that as we look through the text here more in a moment, but one of the signs is earthquakes. One of the signs is famines. Well, if the disciples had taken the discourse that follows from where we are now and had heard the words earthquakes and famines and had jumped to the conclusion at the first sign of an earthquake or a famine, the end is near, well, they'd be misled. They'd be in the wrong place. They wouldn't be where Christ had wanted them to be. So he makes what is a very sensible opening statement. You know, there are going to be some things that happen. He mentions specifically in the verses I already read, wars and disturbances. These signs, although they are uh, you know, meaningful in some other sense, they don't necessarily translate into eschatology in and of themselves. The other thing to note here is that although the real signs will be obvious once they come, there are other more common events surrounding them that are not so obvious except for those who would be informed by Scripture. So, for example, if I were to go to Revelation and pull out some of the disturbances that are going to be given out of Revelation, I can pick some that you've never seen before, I've never seen before, we'll never see otherwise than just in Revelation itself. If you do see them, you're in, you're in tribulation, okay? Basically, you can be sure of that. But, but around those very unique ones, there are a lot of very common ones. Things that we today call natural disasters. So what he's trying to do is sort that out for the, re, for, the, for the listener here, for the disciples a little bit, and tell them what are not. Let's listen to what he says are not signs of the end. First of all, he says, For many will come in my name saying, I am he. Meaning, these are false messiahs. Men who would come and say to you and I, I am Christ having returned. Meaning, they are claiming to be, in the, in the case of a Jew, they may be claiming to be a first-time Messiah. In the, claim, in the case of Christians, or supposed Christians, these would be people who would claim to be Christ returning, but in both cases claiming to be the Messiah. He says, do not go after them. Now, what I find interesting about this is he does not say, do not go after them unless they prove themselves to you that they're me. Do not go after them unless they give you the secret Messiah handshake that I'll show you right now. Right? Do not go after them unless they can, you know, do this such a thing or say such a thing or whatever. 
Don't go after them unless they look like this. He just says don't go after them. He leaves no opportunity for you to go after anyone who ever claims to be the Messiah, period. Never follow anyone ever to the end of history that ever claims to be the Messiah. Now, why would he say it that way? Or am I overstating it? I'll tell you why he's saying it that way and why it is to be taken that way. Because when the real Messiah really returns, you're with him. You're with him. All Christians will be with him of those who are in the church now. And of those who are on the earth awaiting his return, they're the ones crying out for him. And he comes in response to their call. We've covered that in here already. And for those who are calling out for him and see his return, folks, there's not going to be any opportunity to misunderstand his return. There's not going to be any chance you missed it. It will be a day like none other, Scripture tells us, where there will all the luminaries in the sky will dwindle where he will arrive on the clouds as a single point of light, the only light visible in all of the universe in that moment, we're told, such that day will become like night, or the other way around, night will become like day. It will be a day where, from pitch blackness, the entire world can see one incredibly bright, visible point of light as Christ returns with his faithful. Trust me, folks, it won't be on the basis of some guy in a street corner claiming to be the Messiah that we have to try to figure out who's who. It'll be so obvious no one can miss him. And that's why he can say with confidence that in the meantime, if anyone does call upon you and says, I'm the Messiah, self-evidently they're not. Because that's not how I'm going to return. That's why we can be so sure of that statement. That's why anyone who would claim to be the Messiah in the meantime can be proven to be a fraud. Then he says, don't let the war, the, the idea of a war itself or of other disturbances, uh, Matthew says wars or rumors of wars, don't let those kinds of things disturb you. In other words, don't let them get you kind of thinking the end is right around the corner. You know, Paul faced this very problem in the church at Thessalonica when he writes to that church both in his first and his second letter because they had been talked to by other teachers. They had been convinced by others that they themselves were in tribulation during their lifetime. And one of the ways that they were convinced of that fact was by the very idea that they were in persecution. They were being persecuted as the church by the Romans, by the Jews principally at the time. And Paul writes to them saying, the fact that life is hard, that there are disturbances, that you're in persecution, does not mean you're in the tribulation, although in some sense they're similar, right? Persecution is persecution. Death is death. You know, misery is misery. So you could make a parallel in your mind and assume that because my life is terrible and everything around here seems to be falling apart, I must be in the tribulation. He says, don't let that event get you off track because that kind of event will happen. They are not signs in and of themselves. So what he's trying to warn you and I and, the, and obviously the disciples about is prematurely coming to the conclusion that we find ourselves in the days prior to Christ's second coming, in the moments before his second coming. And these are signs he's talking about, signs of the end. I want to make clear of something if we go into the next section here where he begins to answer the third question. There's a difference between me telling you about the end. If you think about timeline, a, a continuum of time, and here is the point in the future where Christ returns... Part of what he's going to talk about is that moment. But part of what he's going to talk about are things that happen in advance of that moment, up, up here somewhere. Well, how far back do you go? Well, he's going to address that in a very interesting way here in a moment. But you have to be sure to distinguish between the moment itself and signs which simply precede the moment, which are not the same thing as the moment. And the questions will show that to you as well. So he has given you, first and foremost, things not to consider to be signs that the end is near. Having done that, now in verse 10, 
He begins to answer question three. Remember question three, what are the signs of the end of the age? And I want you to look at how the answer tells us that is in fact the question he's addressing. Verse 10, then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Here's one of those places where Matthew is an important cross-reference for us. You need to look real briefly at the same verses I have noted there for you on your page in Matthew 24. Look at how Matthew addresses that same moment just for a second. He says in chapter 24, verse 7, For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And that's the important extra phrase we want to look at here in a minute. So the question I believe he's answering here, and as you look at the context, I think you'll agree, what are the signs of the end of the age? Now remember, in Luke's Gospel, the question is centered around the temple. But yet in Luke's Gospel, he starts with this conversation about things that we know from history did not attach themselves to the moment when the temple itself was destroyed. There is nothing in recorded history to suggest that when the temple itself was destroyed, we had, for example, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Let me tell you what that means, by the way. That's an idiom. Not an idiot, that, that would be me. But an idiom, that's a term we use in language to mean a phrase that is euphemistic. It's a turn of words that don't mean exactly what they say. They, they have a kind of an underlying secondary meaning that you only really understand if you're a part of the culture that came up with that idiom. This is a Jewish idiom. It comes out of the Jewish, Jewish Talmud, or Jewish writings generally. And it means simply this, world wars. When you think of two nations going against battle and against one another individually, that's what war is, period. That's not unique. That is war. Two nations fighting each other, two kingdoms, two kings, two authorities. That's war. And until World War I, that's the only kind of war we'd ever seen. Now, we had seen combinations of countries against combinations of countries, but it was always still a regional conflict. Regional meaning within a fairly small proximity. Nations that bordered one another, or if they didn't border one another, they had some common interest maybe that divided them some body of water or some land that they both bordered and they wanted control over it. It was in that sense regional. Until World War I came along, we had never seen a conflict that could span literally the globe. Part of that came down to simply technology and the ability to travel around the world, right? But part of it is, again, God's way of telling us and communicating to us about his plan for the world. The idiom nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom meant to the Jew world war, the entire globe fighting against one another. A unique concept. In fact, how unique was World War I when it happened? We didn't call it World War I. We called it what? The war to end all wars because we had never seen anything like it nor did we ever expect to see anything else like it. Until World War II came along and then we had to name it World War I. Right? That's how unique it was. Christ says, when you see that, now you know that you are approaching the end of the age. Then he says... There will be famines in various places and earthquakes. Now, here we go again with being careful about interpreting things that are every day as a sign of the end. He's already kind of clarified earlier that there's going to be wars and disturbances. Don't let that in and of itself cause you concern. But when you see world wars, ooh, you've reached a new level. And when you see famines and earthquakes, now I don't just mean, and I don't, I don't believe he means the very existence of earthquakes. We've had those since Noah's day as far as we know. He means in terms of severity, because look how he ended the comments in the section we've read so far in Matthew. He says, these are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. 
Let's talk about birth pangs here for just a moment. Being the expert that I am, <laughs> vicariously through my wife, a birth pang. The nature of birth pangs are this. They, they're, they're, there's a culminating event out there in the future, right? One that any pregnant woman is you know, waiting for desperately, especially when the birth pangs hit. And a birth pang being what it is, it's kind of an interesting event because in its earliest stages, isn't it easy to mistake it for something else? To overlook it? To wonder if it's not just something you ate? I mean, this is all what I've heard. But right? One of the most common experiences of any pregnancy is, is false labor or a lady rushing to the hospital only to be told later it was indigestion, go home. Right? Because birth pangs by their nature work this way. They start at a fairly low level of severity and they're spaced apart. They're fairly infrequent and erratic and spaced far apart. Such that in its early stages, it's hard to make out the pattern. It's hard to know what you're looking at. It's hard to even take note of it. Only as it grows in intensity and comes closer in frequency do you begin to finally put two and two together and you go, hey, I think I see the pattern now. And what do you know when you see the pattern? The end is near. So if God is going to use famines and earthquakes, as Matthew says, like birth pangs to labor, then it's an easy understand- it becomes easy for us to understand how those everyday common events could turn into signs for you and I by their frequency and by their severity. I went to the United States Geological Survey website. This is a government agency that looks at things of geology. It's their basic role in life. And they track earthquakes nationwide as well as worldwide. Now, if this is to be believed, in, in other words, if we understand this to be a sign of the end, and if we understand world wars as being one of those early birth things, then we should be able to confirm Christ's words by looking at the world around us. And as a believer in his word, and as one looking for those signs, as he's instructed us to do, we should expect to find evidence that there are more birth pangs going on, like, for example, a greater frequency of earthquakes. And if you look at the data, that's what you find. Now, somebody could quickly stop me at this point and say, wait a minute, Steve. You know, we've only been able to measure earthquakes with precision in real, relatively recent times. So the fact that I can measure things now that in the past I never would have been able to measure, well, that just makes sense that I'd be able to see more now than well, you know, years and years ago. How can that be necessarily proof of anything? Maybe we just had them all along and we weren't measuring them very well. Fair enough. So what if we just look at from 1990 to, say, a couple of years ago, to 2006, let's say. 1990 to 2006. I mean, for, I think it's fair to say that our ability to measure earthquakes in 1990 wasn't fundamentally lower than it is now. Even if it was a little lower, it wouldn't be hugely different, would it? Nobody would suggest that, I'm sure. So this is data. You can go to the website. I actually had data that I had pulled a couple years ago in a prior time when I taught Revelation. But I went out yesterday, last night, just to update it, make sure I still had the right data. And so you get these old charts on the survey, and they tell you by magnitude and by year and a total count overall worldwide, right? Well, in 1990... Overall, worldwide, they measured 16,590 earthquakes of various magnitudes, right? 16,590. As of the last year where they have complete data is uh, 2006. But if you want to look at just 2004, 2005, 2006, we went from roughly, what, 16,000, 2004, 31,194, 2005, 30,400, 2006, just under 30,000 again. So for three years running, so in other words, those aren't outlying years. It's not like one of those years was sort of a freaky year, right? For three years in a row, we've seen double, roughly, the number of earthquakes that we've seen just 15 years ago. So now, is that catching the world's attention? Do we have people running around in the streets saying the sky is falling, the world's about to end, Christ is about to return? No, and nor should we. 
if you know Revelation, you know even as the sky is falling, they're still blaspheming God and not looking for the end like they should. What we are to know, though, is for those who understand and read God's Word and heed it, you have what you need to know. You have world wars and you have the birth pangs of the end evident in the way God said it would be evident. Famines itself have also increased. Many simply attribute that to the fact that there's more people in the world. Well, you can always find one way or another to explain away what Scripture says you'll find in the world if you're not willing to believe Scripture. But the data's there. You don't have to search very hard to find it. So the point is simple enough. God said that the signs that the end was coming, the end of the age, which to a Jew, as Matthew teaches it, would mean the end of the time, the present time we live in, prior to Christ's return, or prior, in their mind, to the kingdom of the Messiah being set up on earth, which we know to be the time of Christ's second coming. So from a Jewish perspective, we live in a present age that will be replaced by an age to come where the Messiah will rule on earth. That's the teaching that the Jews understood and followed, and that we now understand to be part of God's plan for the Messiah, for for Christ himself. And the signs that we're about to transition out of this age and into that future age include world wars, and in the sense of birth pangs, you have increasing earthquakes and famines. But do you notice, in the light of those signs, there's no phrase at the end that says, so look up, your redemption is nigh. No. He says, this is just the beginnings of birth pangs. It'd be like me telling the woman, oh, hold on, get back in the house. It's not happening yet. No need to rush to the hospital just yet. That's his point. So while you and I still don't know the day that the Lord will call us home, whether by death or by rapture, and should be ready for that at any moment, we can say for certain that though the end is near, it's not probably tomorrow. In fact, we know it's not tomorrow because there's a whole bunch of stuff in Scripture that has to take place before His return. Though there's nothing in Scripture required before you and I might be raptured and certainly nothing to keep us from dying on the way home. Right? So our, our, our opportunity to appear before Christ is imminent. Christ's opportunity to return to earth, though, still awaits a few more things, at least in terms of what we understood out of Scripture. So that's what we've seen this, to this point in Luke's Gospel as we read through chapter uh, 21, verse 12. But before all these things... Oh, stop there. All right. How do I know that I'm now looking at a new question and not a continuation of discussion about the end of the age? Well, because Luke tells you very clearly in the discourse, but before all these things. The things he was just talking about were what? Was he talking about the end of the age? No, he was talking about the signs that come before the end of the age. So when he says... But before all these things, you back up not just from the end of the age, you've got to back up now before any of those signs as well. So we're talking about moving quite a ways back in time. In fact, by the content of what he's about to give you in the next series of verses, we find out that you move back all the way to A.D. 68 through A.D. 70, okay, the two-year period that he's about to describe. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you and deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Remember the setting I said that this took place in? The time and the place? After he left the temple, probably in the evening hours, 
on the Mount of Olives, but most importantly of all, to a very private group of disciples. This is not being spoken to an audience of, of crowds. There's no lookers-on here. There's no, there's no bystanders sort of eavesdropping. Jesus knows that, and so what he prepares here in these statements are lessons uh, of encouragement, if you will, for the future that are specific to the events that occur in certain people's lives. Now, you could draw comparisons out of these statements for your own life. No doubt, and you should. In fact, application from Scripture is a healthy pattern, a healthy behavior in any case. That is not the same thing as saying, however, that he had, Jesus had you and I in mind when he spoke these words. It's not the same thing as saying he intended for these words to have personal meaning to you and I in what we will face in our lives. Does every Christian who walks the earth and dies at some point face these things? Well, clearly not. They're not generalized comments about what Christians will face, though many Christians in later centuries did, but rather they are specific comments to specific men about specific things they will face in their lives. As one friend to the men he loved, and knowing what was coming, he talked to the disciples. These were the events of the disciples' lives. These were the events that the disciples themselves faced. One of the confusions, one of the reasons why the Olivet Discourse can be misinterpreted by some is that if you're not careful in parsing out which question is being answered at which point in the discourse, and if you're not, and more importantly, if you're not noticing that each of these writers addresses them a little differently, you begin to make some bad assumptions. Look, for example, at the chart you have with regard to Matthew. Do you notice anything interesting there? Matthew never addresses this question. Because, as I said earlier, he never, addressed the qu- he never gives the answer to this question because he never included the question itself. So there are no verses in Matthew's discourse directed to the question, when will these things take place? Or what, will be, uh, what, what is going to happen around the events of the temple's fall. However, if you go look at Matthew's discourse, you will see Matthew saying some things that are very, very similar to what we just read in Luke. Which then would beg a question, perhaps, of, well, Steve, why isn't that the same thing? Why are you willing to say that words that look so similar aren't actually talking about the same event? Well, as I said, I'm not going to study Matthew in here with you now because that would just be a little off the track from where we're going. But the answer to that teaser is found in the Revelation class that you can download from... What's on the website? At no charge, I might add. And if you want to be specific, so that you don't have to listen through all 52 hours of it, literally, 52-hour long course, go to Revelation 9a and 9b, as it's noted on my website, on the the verse-by-verse ministry website. This is the Olivet Discourse teaching from from that lesson. And in there, you will hear the full detail on how Matthew and Luke compare and why we know what we know about the two. It basically runs through this entire chart in detail. I'm going to leave you with that as an incentive, but for now I just want you to note that what we've just read and what we will go through next week in detail, and from there forward, is a look at what Jesus is telling the disciples about their experiences leading up to the destruction of the temple. In the years that precede, and and in the case of John and others, after the temple's destruction. So we'll come back into it at that next week. For now I just want to leave you with the fact that this, this discourse, as we've gone through this far, sets us up to understand that Jesus is not saying, not expecting that the church would be ignorant nor oblivious to the end times as they occur. To those who would say, well, Jesus said, you cannot know the hour of the day, so we shouldn't even try. We should set aside the whole area of eschatology. And those who seek after it with an earnest desire to understand it are foolish, 
for they're trying to know something God has not intended we would know. I've heard that in many places at different times. If anyone in here walked in with that kind of general perspective, let me, let me help correct your natural and healthy interest in eschatology by reminding you that Christ himself was willing to give to his disciples and through the word to you and I today, very detailed and, e- and relatively easily understood explanations of what would happen and how it would happen and how we would know it's happening, which suggests very clearly to me that we're to know these things. Number one, so that we could be prepared for them. Number two, so that we could teach others of the expectation of his return of the expectation of God to keep that promise and of our need to be ready for it. Dear Father, any time I'm in Your Word with the uh, intent to study about the end and about Your coming, Father, it is an exciting moment. It, it revives in me such an anticipation and such an earnest desire to see Your soon return. As all in the church fathers should share, I know in that same earnestness, I pray that the teaching tonight has, has created that earnest desire in the hearts of those who've heard it. I hope that for all who might be a part of this study, whether in the room or elsewhere, Father, that they would take from this opportunity to hear Your words regarding the end uh, just a renewed excitement to testify to You and to the truth of the Gospel and to the need for repentance and to salvation and for the hopeful expectation of that return to come and of our day with You. For, Father, it is that hope that drives us forward. It is that hope, Father, that gives meaning to the Gospel. The death, Father, has lost its sting that we will one day rise again with you. Thank you, Father, for the chance to study together with so many men and women who respect and love your word as they should. And may it be your will that we would return next week to finish this chapter and ultimately to finish this gospel as you have written it. We thank you and and, uh, pray a prayer blessing on those who have attended. In Jesus' name, amen.